Welcome to Timely Wisdom with Drs. Silas Bradford, Sarita Wright, Brenda Wallace, Carolyn Carlisle, and I am Denise C. Burns. You can watch us live every Tuesday at 3 p.m. Central Standard Time. Follow us on Facebook. Subscribe on YouTube. Today our guest is Martha Lou Stewart, Ph.D., Multicultural Education. This was recorded on October 26, 2021. Um, to introduce, if I may begin by saying before I do her professional um, bio, Vita, uh, someone that I was very, very blessed to, to have served as um, her pastor for a few years uh, down in Orlando, Florida, uh, just a gift and a blessing to the body of Christ. And so um, I know her in that aspect, but I want you all to also know her now in this, um, this arena, um, 50, um, over 52 years um, in education oh. and has just recently uh, retired just a few months ago um, from this. Um, we're blessed on today to have Dr. Martha Eslu Stewart um, with us. Um, those of you who are FAMU um, alone, uh, the proper name is Florida um, A&M University. Uh, she's a graduate um, from Florida A&M. She also holds a master's from the University of Missouri, um, an educational a doctor degree from Georgia State University, and a PhD from the University of Florida. She could not be perfect. I must say that I'm a University of Georgia alone. She couldn't be perfect. Um, she also... Um, uh, has held the McKnight Junior Faculty Postdoctoral uh, Fellowship. Um, she has served and she retired as a professor from the University of Central Florida. Listen to this. Um, she served as the Urban Multicultural and Exceptional Education Child, Family, and Community Sciences College of Education and Human Performance. Let me say that again. The Urban Multicultural and Exceptional Educational Child, Family and Community Sciences College of Education and Human Performance. Um, she has served um, in that area um, for many years, um, but I do want to also note that she's been a co-leader of domestic diversity um, for College of Education. She's been the co-convener of urban initiatives and supporting high needs population special interest group. Um, and um, listen to this. Uh, there are several um, publications that she's written and been a part of. I want you to listen to some of these. Um, Implicit Bias, Resources and References, a module for pre-service um, pre educators in high-need schools. Self-care, Caring for Oneself to Care for Others, a module, Graduate Certificate in Supporting High-Needs Population. Reexamining African American Women and Poverty, the Intersectionality of Economics, Education, and Health. I'm also collaborated in this work on situational environmental circumstances and mentoring, high-risk delinquent and dependent child educational research project, situational environmental circumstances mentoring program agency. Listen, listen, I mean, her bio is extensive. And then I also want to highlight this, uh, as she calls, as it is called, a synergistic activity, the short walk from school to juvenile. 
an examination of the impact of geographical space and neighborhood and community contests on school mm. outcomes. It is extensive. And then um, I must say, um, as I, let me take a sip of water that, um, excuse me. Um, she's also a member of the Orlando alumni chapter of Delta Sigma Theta Incorporated. Again, if you all uh, welcome um, to, to us, to Timely Wisdom, um, Dr. Martha Lou Stewart. Dr. Thank Stewart, you. welcome to Timely Wisdom. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. You all, um, one of the first questions that I'd like to ask um, you, Dr. Stewart, we would like to ask all of our guests, how have you been out here in these here COVID streets? Great question. And I have responded by saying I have proceeded with caution, with care, and with common sense, learning as much as I can, but not with fear. Wow. Wow. But not with fear. Wow. 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 That's that's good. Um, that's that's good, especially when there was so much fear that was stoked mm -hmm. for us in last year. So that that's powerful to hear. Um, you have an extensive background in education. Um, I want. I'm curious. We're curious. What sparked your desire for education? Depends upon how much time you have for me to answer <laughs> that question. I am the last child of the late Solomon and Rachel Scott. We're all products of a small town in Florida called Monticello, Florida. It's a rural uh, county. It's a rural area. It perhaps is a neighbor to Tallahassee, Florida, which is the capital. My, my parents, uh, my, my father grew up on what is now called Ayers property. They have been there since 1865. Everyone was a farmer or worked outside of the home or inside of the home as it relates to being farming and et cetera. So I grew up on those 50 acres of, of property. However, wow. my parents, my father never went to school. I talked about my helping him to write his name at the age of nine. My mother went to the sixth grade. That was very, that's as far as she could go back uh, in the 1920s. But they had such a love for education. And they always told me that I was, I could be whatever I could be. And then I went to an all segregated black school called Howard Academy High School, Howard Academy in Monticello, Florida, with all black teachers. And they were from all different parts of the state. They helped me to imagine a place that outside of Monticello, because I could wow. do that. They told me. I didn't know that I was smart, I was bright, and I could do whatever I wanted to do. And then perhaps the, the crowning point of all of this is that the students who had graduated from Howard Academy came back to school, to my classes, at, during their days off, and the principal would ring the bell and we'd all have an assembly and everyone from throughout the school would gather. And I would sit near the front row and I would listen to them talking about going to college. 
Never, ever imagined that. And then finally I said, I think I could do that. And from, from that sense on, I have been in love with education. And even seven decades later, I love it even more. Wow. 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 And so you grew up in a home that that your dad couldn't read or write. Right. Your mom, sixth grade. Right. And now, 52 years later, you've retired from being a college professor. That is true. Wow. First generation, (laughs) first generation college student. First generation. (laughs) Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Um. Let me um, ask you this, and then I know my, my, my co-hosts have questions that they'd like to, to pose for you. Um, what, what have you um, noticed as the biggest challenges for women seeking to teach hmm. in higher education? What a great question. Uh, let me personalize that and just talk about my own journey, if you don't mind. Um, access to knowledge about the opportunities available in higher education, what I call the networks that are available. For example, I learned through my program at the University of Florida. They received a a call from the University of Central Florida asking for a name. I never dreamed of being a college professor. I just didn't know what I wanted to do, but I did want a PhD. And once I got to the University of Central Florida, here is where I saw some of the needs that we need a variety of mentors and we need a variety of sponsors. A mentor can help you get into the door, could help you along the way, but the sponsor helps you to really get a job. So you have a variety of mentors and, and, and sponsors that are needed. I've, I've always said, colleagues, that getting there is but one part of the journey, but staying there is still another. And that you have to understand that very few people walk this journey alone. And I am a product of one who never had to walk through this journey alone. But I hope that I made myself available to understand that I was teachable. I wanted to know different people who didn't look like me, who didn't think like me. I wanted to know people who were in power. Uh, So I continued to build networks along the way. There is no set way of answering that question, but these are some of the challenges that I personally have experienced. And and perhaps I've seen other colleagues who've experienced same things, but getting there is just one thing. Staying there is still another. Wow. Wow. So having a mentor is good, but you also need someone that can actually open the door, help you get through the door. That's it. That's it. And someone who's going to be real to have all kinds of conversations with you, um, someone that you respect, who has walked that walk and who really knows all of the pitfalls and those things that will get you to where you need to get to. Wow. Wow. I, I hope um, all that are listening to us, but that you, you hear this because um I find that just to be so important because um, for those who are exposed to that educational track, you know, you're pushed, keep going higher education, higher education, get your next degree. And, but they're not necessarily told now, how do I get myself in position 
in order mm -hmm. that I can help someone else? How, how do I get in the door? How can I now teach? How can I now be a part of the institution? And so what you just said um, is just simply priceless um, information. Thank you for that, Dr. Stewart. My pleasure. What we, we have here, multicultural um, education. What is urban and multicultural education? In my opinion, let's take a look at multicultural education. Um, when I personally use the term multicultural education, colleagues, I'm looking at education through the lens of culture and all that it brings. Uh, linking instruction through a student's community lived experiences. I happen to base much of my research on the work of Louis Moe, who worked with students of Mexican-American descent in Tucson, Arizona. And as a part of his research, he took a look at the lived experiences of students from those diverse backgrounds, and he found ways to integrate those experiences within the, his own class, his own classroom. And so looking at culture through the eyes of education with the students and families that you have in, in your background, in your community, would make all of the difference. So if you have multicultural education here, and then you have various paths, you have Urban education. Urban education is usually a term um, that refers to those those persons who teach in what we call metropolitan, large metropolitan areas. Okay, so you get a general background information of some teaching strategies that you use with students in those settings, understanding that one size does not fit all. So the university does some big work, but then your your school district, and etc., will give you the other backdrops that you need. So you've got multicultural education, you have urban education. Some people choose to use the path of rural education wherever you are. But for me, I tend to use the terms children and their families who are a part of underserved, under-resourced and underfunded communities mm -hmm. rather than label it. Wow, that is absolutely amazing. Mm -hmm. The vast, um, differences. I, as we're on this subject, I'd like to talk, uh, ask the question about um, our students, our multicultural students. What have you found most students of color are ill-prepared for when heading to college? May I rephrase that? Sure, please. Um, not sp specifically students of color. Yeah but oftentimes students that I've previously described may not be ill-prepared, but they may be under-prepared. Ah. I'm talking ah. about students from under-resourced, underfunded, underserved communities. Mm -hmm. So if you can continue to see that, that pattern from a specific school district or schools, then that's when the village needs to speak. And here I've added, then there's a need for family, for church, and community involvement. It starts at home, colleagues. We, I believe that we need to cheer as much for the child who has improved in his behavior as you would for that same eight-year-old who scored a winning touchdown mm -hmm. in the youth league. 
awesome. That's awesome. Awesome. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> it takes a village, doesn't it? It really takes a village. Yes, absolutely, because you see a lot of the children that come in and you say talked about them being ill prepared. Um much of that is not something that they have any control over. And, and, so, and I hope as a part of this conversation that we can challenge that deficit theory, okay, that deficit thinking, because it transfers to the child, it transferred to the home. If you're not careful, it would become a self-fulfilling prophecy. And I know mm -hmm. none of us want to do that. Wow. And I, I see one of our, our viewers, um, Bishop Vaughn, I know that she also serves um, on uh, the board, uh, um, or board of Education for the Detroit Public Schools. And she puts in the comment, underserved, under-resourced, mm -hmm. and Detroit Public School Community District. And, and I appreciate how you kind of said that, because we, we asked the question about ill-prepared. Mm -hmm. But but your 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 it's more about under under yeah right. it makes more sense that's that's very very good question or answer I should say go ahead Brenda and I think it 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 really speaks to sometimes the the economic um, privileges that some have and some some do not. But my, my question is how, um, Dr. Stewart, uh, how, what would you suggest or how would you um, offer, what would you offer to us about how our African-American churches can implement educational programs? And there are a lot of churches who do, um, that have uh, tutoring, they may have, um, places for students to, to learn technology, but how would you, um, or what would you suggest that our African-American churches, because you just said it's a village. It takes more, while it starts in the home, it takes more than just the home. It takes the village, it takes the community, and it takes, in our, in our community, it takes the black church. So um, how would you help us uh, prepare the churches to help students in, in in this new uprising of technology, of the world of technology. You're talking about entering the tech world, I assume. Yes. My child entering the tech world. And I said, frankly, children already know. I said that a child, a child should lead them. They, mm. What they need to do is to have all of that energy challenge. So let me just go step by step as to some things that I thought about. Uh, I thought about something that I use with, and I used in my classrooms. It's something that I teach university students. It's called community asset mapping. Community asset mapping. You find out what are the resources in your given community. Okay, that's number one. What are the resources in your given community? Remember no matter the size of the business in your community, each business has a line for outreach funding. Mm -hmm. So the next step, what I'd say is that what's the current educational programming that currently exists in your church? What's the current educational programming that, that exists in your church? And the, the third step I'd say is do a brief study in your church. What are some of the digital needs of the family? It's important. What are some of the digital needs of the family? 
And another point that I thought about is, what are the demographics of your specific church? Um, do you have a high level of grand families, um, kin, extended care caregivers, for example? Do you have a high number, and this is what I've seen in my latest research, a high number of grandparents or other adults who are raising their grandchildren or extended kin? And that pause, that's a pause for different dynamics, but because here you'll need to have to the opportunity to work closely with grandparents and grandfamilies that they would they would know what the technology is all about. We cannot assume that they know. Right. They can't, we cannot even assume that they know um, the technology that their child is using. And then I say, bloom where you plant it. Whatever is available in your church, find an educational component that you can tie it to. And then I get old-fashioned. I say that I would tell, tell families in the church to turn off the TV Decide how much time that the child has to play on their devices and turn some of that time into real educational time. Mm -hmm. And then lastly, I say, and a child shall teach them, is my latest research, set up a reverse mentoring program where children can really teach other family members the technology that's currently in their home and what they can do. Those are some of my thoughts. Oh my God, those are awesome. Oh my goodness. I hope we can get some of those into our our chat. Um, Dr. Stewart. The asset mapping, businesses, outreach, funding, all of them. Yeah, exactly. Um, what are the current educational programs? A brief study of what, what are some of the digital needs? I love it. Demographics, the grand um parenting um right. extended family and grandparents and right. grandfamilies uh right. bloom where you planted uh mm -hmm. turn off the tv that's a good one mm -hmm. uh, yeah. and their devices and the, a child shall leave them uh my my colleagues have told me many times uh, even though i try real hard to um share my facebook page that i need to get my grand daughters to help me uh, without doing this uh, and 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 they're right so I, I need I need to listen and do number the last thing you ask us to do a child shall shall teach them so I appreciate that thank you I, so I think I, I really must go back to say knowing the demographics of your church is so very important and the latest research that I've been able to do we're seeing an increase need for grandparents. I use the term grandfamilies because it's not only just grandparents, it's it's big mamas and big daddies and et cetera, who are really having to assume legal care of grandchildren because of a variety of reasons. And that's where the church can step in. And we cannot assume that they know about the latest technology. I did not mention um, the relationship between the school and the church knowing what the needs are of the school. Um, we have programs where our children have really are being left behind. They're no part of their own, through no part of the school because of the, the current climate, because of what COVID-19 has done. So we're, we're finding ourselves catching up. But then you have students and children who are being given devices uh, that are not able to use the devices for the appropriate reason that they're using 
So that mm-hmm. that's a critical area that we've had to bridge that. We have to bridge that digital divide. Thank you so much. And I, I know in the CME church, they used to have a program and I think they may still have it. And I'll ask Dr. Burns to speak to this, where each church was connected to a school in their community, which um, uh, I think all churches should have, should adopt a school. That's correct. I totally agree. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Now, we, we, you said you weren't going to talk about this, but I've got to ask, come on with this self-care. What, what, did, you, what did your um, module, what did your module suggest about self-care? The concept of social emotional learning, Ooh. SEL. Everyone on the line knows that we're talking about social emotional learning. Um, that is the, the, the child... It's a multidisciplinary approach related to looking at the whole child. I really want to say that looking at the whole child, you cannot look at a child anymore in isolation. You've got to look at the physical health of the child. You've got to look at the mental health of the child. You've got to look at the educational health of the child. All of that's important for our children to be able to bloom where they're planted to blossom. But in the meantime, not only what we must look at those aspects of the health of the child, we must look at our own self-care. Sometimes as parents, as women, as leaders, as men, um, as teachers, we spend so much time taking care of other people that we sometimes forget about ourselves. And I've learned that in the past few months. It's been a long time. Um, colleagues that I spent time even thinking about me and I felt so selfish when I started thinking about me but that's called deficit thinking mm-hmm. it's okay to put yourself first mm-hmm. because remember when you're uh, on on a flight it says put your own mask on first before you put the mask on to others that's the same thing about self-care again you cannot help other people until you learn to help yourself. And I have to tell that to novice teachers. It's not how long you spend at a school day. It's what you do when you're at the school. Wow. Wow. Dr. Dr. Stewart, my goodness. Um, Yeah. Think deficit, self-care deficit thinking. Um, But but I want to ask you you this, and this is something more of what you've done. um, I know on the church level, I'm in trying to bridge um, some gaps of persons who perhaps are underprepared. But about every two years, uh, you form uh, this this tour um, around uh, college campuses or around historical um, places uh, that that you believe that uh, young kids should be exposed to. Did that come from um, your own kind of, of being exposed to education as you saw early? Um, you said that you, you were there and um, you saw all of these others. You said, I wanted to go to school as well. What, what motivated you uh, to, to do uh, such an extensive kind of program and take out such, um, take out the kind of time that you have with this? That's a loaded question, <laughs> but it's a very Im- important question. You know, we continue to reinvent ourselves 
as people, but let me tell you about the latest, one of the more, the latest iteration of Martha. Um, 2004, 2005, um, around that period, uh, uh, it's a personal story. It, it's, it's still fairly traumatic to me, so I'll try and talk it out. Our, our church split, uh, and it split right before uh, homecoming, church anniversary, and Women's Day. And when it split, those who remained felt that they had no history. They felt that there was nothing that they needed to celebrate. And I always had the passion about history. So I, along with others, said, look, well, what, what you can do is that why don't you bring your artifacts, any part of this church's history, uh, to the church, and we'll see what we have. You would be amazed at what they brought. They brought wedding pictures. They bought funeral pictures. They bought, they bought pictures when they were in the choir. They bought pictures when they were in, in, in wow. Sunday school. They bought pictures of their parents um, who were some of the, quote, founders or the founding members of the church or grandparents, etc. And so because they did all of that, it again reignited in me <laughs> the desire to know more, to know more about my church. So I developed some steps now when I'm asked these kinds of questions uh, about how you how you can do it. I think that's where I'm leading. So begin with knowing your own church history. Find find out as much as you can. That's my first step. Number two, you need to find some of the oldest members of your church and take your phone, record their history. You need to have a set of questions now, colleagues, that you wanna ask them. Then you can begin to store any artifacts they have, whether it's wedding, whether it's funeral, whether it's programs, whether it's baptisms. Check with your local library, find your church's names, including its previous locations, for example, your denomination ought to have an archival room, et cetera, as a part of their major denominations. I spent several days on the floor of the CME publishing house in Memphis, Tennessee. I even went to Jackson, Tennessee, and I spent many, many days. That's supposed to be my sabbatical at UCF doing that kind of work, but that was boring. I did that quickly so I can do that. And I talked with the librarians, the ones who were interested in genealogy, found out as much information as I could about our church's history, along with our denomination's history. And what you need to do is to find one person who might have an interest in writing a proposal, talk to your pastor, and try to sell it. You may not have a large number of people that are interested in serving in this ministry, but at the end of the day, at the end of the day, colleagues, they will be interested in your product. It's important that you can identify an archivist, an archivist in your church, someone who can sew, who can make quilts, who has the patience to go through lots of paper to help you to put this together. 
you need a place to store all of that stuff. <laughs> There's got to be a closet. There's got to be a place somewhere in your church, in, in a building where you want to store that. And then now that you have organized all of this about your church, then you're ready to spread your wings. After you know the history of your church, then get to know the history of your immediate surroundings. Example, what is your street's name? What's the origin of your street's name? What's the origin of your child's school's name? Tell about the African-American local history. And if you get all of that done, now you are ready for a half-day trip. Make it a scavenger hunt. Got a church van? Use it. Make it fun. You can have storytellers at each spot. Do as much as you can in your local history, including those educational spots. And once you've done that, then your next journey would be to taking a state trip, uh, including the names of your HBCUs, your traditionally white institutions, of places where students don't necessarily have to go for four or five years. And you could have speakers to come in, all of that. Now, once you've done that, then you're ready to do the big time. You're ready to move from your estate to the states in your region. I live in the Southern region. We've gone to all of the states in our Southern region. Our last trip before the virus was we retraced the footprints of the Underground Railroad. We traveled from Orlando, Florida, all the way to St. Catharines, Canada. It's about, about 50 of us, including children, families, and external members of the community. And we sat in the same seat where Harriet Tubman sat when she visited, when she lived in St. Catharines, Canada. When the climate clears, our goal is to go back to Philadelphia to spend a whole week there to learn as much as I can and to end in Albany, New York, where she spent her Albany, New York, where she spent her last days. So, and then you need to start this ministry. Is it a large ministry? No, it's never large. But remember what Margaret Mead said, never doubt that a small number of committed people can change the world. And she ends by saying, remember, it's the only thing that has ever done, that has ever changed the world. It never took a whole landslide of people to change the world but it starts with a small number of committed leaders. I hope I've at least addressed parts of your question. Wow. That is so powerful. This is amazing. A litany of things we must do. Yes. We are, um, Dr. Stewart, we're um, nearing our church anniversary and one of our my our members is talking about the artifacts of the church and the history. And I thought, my God, thank you for the confirmation. Thank you for the confirmation. I definitely needed to hear that because she is gung-ho about it. And I'm just cheering her on because she's she's definitely an archivist. So thank you for that. <laughs> Wonderful. Wonderful. But there's another question here, uh, Dr. Stewart. It says, um, how can the church state divide be lessened 
to allow for church educational grants to continue your work with books, reading programs, travel technology and technology programs, etc. I am really honored to enter that one because I spent a lot of time thinking about it. Here's number one. You need to get to know the requirements. Get to know the requirements of the grants. It may not be what you think it is. Mm-hmm. Remember when we had the grants regarding the, the, the COVID funds, the, the what we call the forgiven loans, and then some right. churches, some places did not apply because they thought they did not qualify until the list came out and you saw denominations that were that got funded uh, to pay off suit for abusing children, et cetera. So get to know the requirements of the grants. Set up a meeting with the person who's awarding the grant or the organizations. Don't assume that you're not qualified. Start a dialogue. And I said, Pose your idea. So if that doesn't fit, you don't think it's fit, then you won't know until you ask, what is the worst thing that they can say? It's no, right? So ask for assistance and then ask them, do you know of any other places that I can apply? And if none of them don't work, then you begin to form your own networks. So the next time that that grant comes by, the next time it comes, you'll have your own network and you'll pose to them some kinds of questions and solutions as to why you were not funded in the first place and say, listen, I don't quite understand the expectations, the requirements. Can you help me to understand how this organization can be effective to get grants? Because we're doing the work, we're just not getting the funding. And I think uh, part of that comes with, is it necessary that you have a grant writer on staff in order to do that work for you? Or is it just someone that can articulate the verbiage that's needed to the wording for that grant? Grant writers are very expensive. Okay. People make that living. It doesn't help. It doesn't hurt to have one who is a mentor, who is a consultant, but make sure he or she knows that her role, his or her role is that of a consultant. Not when you get the grant that you're going to include that person uh, as a part of it. But there has to be people who are part of your network who can be trained to do that work. Now, it's really tricky because you don't want to get your name in the paper because you have $1 spent at a place that it shouldn't be. And that's the first thing that happens. Your name gets up in print. And once it does, even when it's corrected, it goes from being page A1 and you're in B12 and nobody sees the correction. So make sure you've got your people in place and you're going to spend some time training people to do specific roles. That is what we had to do at Carter Tabernacle under the umbrella of Dr. Vanessa J. Burns. We've got a small grant from the Florida Humanities Council, but we were very careful in how we spent it. That's powerful. I, I, I think it goes back to our mentoring. Mentoring is simply the ministry of multiplication. When we mentor someone, we're just adding on to what God has already given us. And you don't have to do the work by yourself. You need to always be in the place of trying to find people to replace you. Okay. And you can do that. I mean, I'm at a place now. I really would like to just be a consultant, an unpaid consultant. No, I'm not asking for your money, but I am just saying I'd like to do that rather than having to lead initiatives. 
I've not gotten there yet, but I think the more I talk about it, the more I'll feel better about it. Wow. Wow. Powerful. Powerful. Thank you so much. Definitely. I do see another question on there on our board. It uh, says, we want to thank you for your work with the local children to learn their history. Um, your programs are needed across America and your future travels. How can smaller churches without persons like yourself uh, replicate your efforts? What would you, what would you recommend? Again, I think I've, I've, I've tried to say that just identify one person who might be interested in doing the, the, doing the work. Find out as much as you can about what's happening locally with your own history and build upon that. Okay. Uh, network with other uh, organizations within your area. There is a historical society. There are many lay groups that are doing the work. And again, you don't have to do the work alone, but you've got to have committed people who are willing to do the heavy lifting. And that's what it requires initially, the heavy lifting. You don't get a whole lot of accolades, but in the end, it's not for you. It's for generations yet unborn. Absolutely. Well, you have given us a wealth of information this Thank afternoon. You. This is just really wonderful. Um, ladies? Dr. Stewart, um, again, thank you um, for your time, for being with us on today. And if you had any closing thoughts to, to give us um, regarding um, education, um, spirituality, um, what, what, any closing thoughts that you would like to give us? Okay. One person may plant another waters, but generations yet to come will get the increase. Wow. <laughs> As the um, precise educator you are, to the point. <laughs> to the point. Thank you, Dr. Stewart. Um, My pleasure. For, um, being um, with us on today. Um, the information you've given us, um, um, it, do they call it pedagogy in, in education that you gave us some very precise steps of how it is that we have to do that? Am I using that term uh, correctly there? You got you, it. You, you got it. <laughs> that that um, very, uh, the information is a wealth of knowledge. We're going to have to go back and, and unpack that. And, and it's just on so many levels. Um, and, and I think what is going to stick out the most is not ear prepared, under, that word under. Um, thank you um, for your time um, with us on today. If you will hang around um, backstage for us, thank please. You. Thank you. You all send some hearts her way. Let her know she can. she's able to see the chat. Uh, let her know um, how much uh, the information today has been of value uh, to us. Wow. My sisters, wow. Woo. A lot of um, powerful. <laughs> that was awesome. Awesome. Yeah, four awesome. Page of notes. 
<laughs> Wait a minute, you wait. Can you see mine flip? Okay, mm-hmm. this is this is girl. Yes, yes, yes. That's it. That's it. Oh, that experiential learning for me was um very, very powerful. Um my my work was in uh experiential learning. So mm. I, I just that that was just in that underprepared and experiential learning, looking at the experiences of the children in order to create a um, curriculum uh, based on their culture and experience. Mm-hmm. That that was powerful for me. Yeah. Wow. Mm-hmm. Wow. Absolutely wonderful. I'm, I we must uh, note that her son, yes. uh, Marvin Charles Lou Jr. Mm-hmm. Uh, as his mother was ending, put up that comment, and I can hear him saying it just the way he typed it. Yes, sir. <laughs> so thank you, um, um, uh, um, Dr. Um, Marvin Lu- um, Chancellor Jr. Um, for that. Um, we want to thank all of you all for joining with us and spending a moment of your time with us today on Timely Wisdom. We hope and trust that today has been timely for you. And on next week, uh, I am very blessed um, to be able to have with us another guest coming out of the Central Florida area, out of Orlando, Bishop Julia Whitehurst-Wade will be our guest for us on uh, next week's Timely Wisdom. So until then, um, be blessed and remain a blessing. And we'll see you next week. Dr. Bramford, as she would say, Same time, same place. (laughs) Bye.